Hey, 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 it's Fat Albert. <laughs> I have no idea who it is this week because it has been a long week. But hey, guys, amigos, amigos, players, playwrights, doo-doo-dats, everybody, welcome back. This is episode 120, constituting, again, the 120th attempt. I can't even say it. 120th attempt to keep us off the air, but you have all failed. We are back. That's right. You're stuck with us. Sorry. That's we right. don't have At our least- crosses to bear, and we're yours. That's right. <laughs> Got to pay for your sins sometime, and you're paying for them on Earth. Here we go. That's it. All right, guys. Well, hey, welcome back. Morgan here, along with my partner in crime. Hey, guys. It's Murph. Glad to have you all back. Yes, sir. And hey, before we get started, let's just do some quick housekeeping. Hey, uh, head on over to Apple, Spotify. Hit those five stars. Um, we don't know how it works. It's magic. If you uh, used to listen to us on Stitcher, they're out of business change, and Google is going away. So make sure you get on something that's not going to go away anytime soon. So... Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars. Also head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com for everything you need to know about us, including when we have guests with books. We have an extensive book list, Murph. I was just looking at that because we've got another guest coming up with the book. And it's like, uh, you know, at least 40% of our guests have had mm-hmm. books. I tell you what, you know, we try to read the, everybody's book before we have them on the show, at least one book, because some of them have tons of books. I got to tell you, I didn't read this much in college. <laughs> and that's, I'm being serious. You've read more books in the last two years than you have in the previous, how many, 79, 102? Uh, 102. 102. All right. Hey, speaking of that, uh, you had a chronological, we both had a chronological increment uh, recently, so. Yeah, except I started counting backwards, so I'm, I'm down to 62 now. Well, that's because you couldn't count that high, so <laughs> <laughs> you're running out of toes. That's but it. anyway, yeah. But hey, also, guys, follow us on that thing they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook, and the Instagram. But where you got to be is Patreon, mm-hmm. patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We do a lot of fun stuff on there. We've got 911, what's your emergency? Uh, Murph, well, his house will burn down before he gets the number right. One nine nine. There we go. There we go. Hey, we where got you guys you, been? Where you been? We got stuff like you can't make this shit up. We've got uh, our Q and A, uh, our monthly uh, narcometer review. Uh, I thought last month uh, the uh, Sicario Day of the Soldado. Mm-hmm. Freaking! I, I, I mean, Benicio del Toro is in another movie. Uh, I think it's called The Reptile. Um, he's good. Oh, he's good. I tell you what, he can just come and look at you, and he's like, "Okay, here's my money. Don't hurt me." He's scary, motherfucker. <laughs> scary. He is. <laughs> and in, in real life, he's probably the nicest guy in the world. And that's the way most of them are. It's like uh, Boyd Holbrook, you know, on some of his things, like Justified and stuff. He he looks like a killer, but then he's really nice in person. Yeah, even in Logan, and uh, I mean, all the different yeah. things. He's been in a lot of stuff. Uh, Dial of Destiny, you know, so he was a bad guy in Dial of Destiny. But hey, guys, but that's where you're going to hear some good stuff. So head on over there, patreon.com slash game of crimes. Now, you also got to head on over um, our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato, uh, the Iron Fist with the Velvet Glove, rules over all that is Game of Crimes fans. Just go to Facebook and look up Game of Crimes fans, answer a couple easy questions, and gain admittance into the inner sanctum where all the hilarity ensues. There you go. Just what he said. That's right. Just what I said. But you know what else I said, Murph? What did you say? I said, guess what time it is. Do you know what time it is? I'm going to ask you one more time because you got to pack. You still you got a trip coming up and we're doing this kind of late. So guess what time it is, Murph? It's time for Small Town Police Blotter. A little bit of James Bond there. Hey, speaking of James Bond, he would have had nothing to do with this next guy, Murph. 
All I'm right. telling you, oh, this one, this one comes out of Nebraska, and I'm telling you, them corn-fed farm boys are lonely. Um, oh, <laughs> they're lonely. So there is a few. This just happened October 13th. This just like today, a funeral home worker was responsible for. Tr- transporting Ted bodies uh, in a Nebraska county is under arrest. Um, well, the felony burglary complaint um, doesn't really do it justice. So uh, Ryan Smith and a colleague were dispatched last week to a home in Omaha to collect the body of an individual who died there. Now, this guy who died there left something behind, which um, this guy tried to come back and get. So Ryan Smith called the property manager and claimed that the local sheriff had asked him to collect this item for evidentiary purposes. Now, the property manager's like, nah, I'm dumb, but not that dumb. Uh, He denied it, but he later came back and heard noises emanating from the unit, which had been locked from the inside with a deadbolt and the chain. After Smith exited the home with his clothes disheveled, the property manager called cops who busted him on a felony burglary charge. So, Murph, why do you think they would want to seek DNA samples? Oh, no. Because uh, the item left behind was a sex doll, and this oh, guy returned. Oh, I, 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 that's not what I was thinking, so I'm, uh, that's not quite so bad. <laughs> I was thinking cadaver. No, 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 no. This was a sex doll. The guy was the guy was uh, removed from the house, but he left his sex doll behind. I don't know. Maybe that's why he died. Maybe it was a good time. <laughs> Sally, I told you to get your ass in the car. Yeah, guess what? He came and went at the same time. <laughs> but um, bump. You know, uh, oh, that was terrible. That was terrible. You know, when I went through the West Virginia State Police Academy, we had uh, they'd wake you up in the middle of the night. You had to go out and do searches for a lost child, and the doll's name was Sally Rodenkrunch. <laughs> oh. Oh, moving on. You hate Moving that, on. <laughs> so, Murph, you've heard the term getting shit-faced, right? Uh, yeah, but, I, you know, luckily I've never experienced that. <clears throat> Let's hope you don't experience this either. So, a Florida Uh-oh. woman is facing a felony charge for what she did to an elderly neighbor. Now, Callie Robinson, uh, she's 28. She was arrested after a confrontation at the mobile home park where she and the 70-year-old, 76-year-old victim live in separate residences. According to a complaint... Uh, charging Robinson with battery on a victim 65 years or older, she became upset with Daniel Powell. You know what his crime was, Murph? He would always speak with her while she walked her dog. Uh, what, just to say good morning or good, how are you? Or? Yeah. So guess what she did? She took an unsecured bag of dog feces and pushed it into his face. Oh. Oh, that's nasty. So they matched the dog waste big. bag. Yeah. They matched the waste bag with bags in her possession and she ultimately admitted to the battery how old was she and how old was the victim she was 28 the victim was 76 that's why they charged her with a battery on a victim 65 years or older yeah and the punishment should be the same thing she did to him i'll tell you what that's it gives like it gives a whole new meaning to the word shit-faced and she should get it uh she should get shit-faced you're not kidding there's no excuse for that well speaking of florida murph what is the largest retirement home in the united states the villages the villages so <laughs> if some you would believe the stories that come out of oh dude i would You've after this story so a 77 year old florida man um was arrested he was trying to peddle some things oh yeah that was on the news here <laughs> that's legit he was trying to peddle 1800 dollars worth of black market erectile dysfunction drugs only in the villages. Now, he bought a slew of ED products, erectile dysfunction, including 
Snow Snow Vitra 20, Villatra 20, and Cam. I can't even pronounce these. Camagra Oral Jelly. Oh my god! <laughs> With the intent to sell them locally and outside the Sunshine State, according to federal papers. Now, Murph, this is gonna this is gonna shock you. It's not his first rodeo. Guess what else he's tried to hawk? What? Marijuana and cocaine. No math. No math. Oh, dude, you got to step up. You're not going to do math. I mean, that's You're just kitty dope otherwise. Yeah, that's that's just you. You, you <laughs> got to be in the big leagues. You want to run with the big dogs, you got to get off the porch there, Cooter. <laughs> I, you know, the sto- I, seriously, the stories come out of that place. Just uh, Connie said, if, if I pass away, if she passes away first, would I move to the villages? Uh, I don't think so. They have the highest rate of STD transfers <laughs> infections in the United States. <laughs> hey, if, if you're that age and you're getting some, God bless you. Oh, you know? my goodness. Yeah, but I mean, practice safe sex. Good Lord. Well, that's kind of a segue. I'm not sure how to segue into safe sex other than to saying the next guest is actually pretty safe. He's a really pretty good guy. Mm-hmm. And he was somebody that you have worked with in the past. And that's how you cornered this. By the way, you couldn't make fun of him. Guess what? He's a God-fearing, right-wing, rifle-carrying trooper. <laughs> Are you talking about our guest today? Yes. <laughs> You know what? This guy that came that that you're getting ready to hear his story. Um, I met this guy. He's one of the best interdiction troopers in the United States ever. I mean, he's he was well known throughout, and he's going to tell you how he learned his trade and everything. But I got to meet him when I came back from Columbia and got stationed in Greensboro, North Carolina. And this guy, his nose is better than his dog, his drug dog's nose. He called. Well, we we didn't talk about this on on the uh, interview, so I'll tell you real quick. He called me on a New Year's Eve. Um, I was painting the laundry room in our house. The girls were little. He called me on New Year's Eve night, and he had pulled over a tractor trailer car carrier and found several hundred kilos of cocaine in one of the cars. I mean, how the hell do you do that? You know, because <laughs> he pulls a him over. Yeah, he's good, and and well, and the driver was Colombian, so that might have been an indicator. But just a fantastic guy. I mean, one of my best friends all these years later. I met him in 94, and here we are in 23 and still stay in touch all the time. And if it hadn't been for him, your stats would have been for shit, man. Still a stat where you can. <laughs> there you go. Wait a minute. That's another agency. Wait, what other agencies would do that? What other agency would do that? What other agency would go out and make a press release? Huh? Well, that, well, there's one, you know, that's uh, it's called Adopt That Effort. <laughs> You have to figure that out. (laughs) (laughs) They usually show up after the fire. But anyway, we digress. So, Murph, but we can't hear the story of Mr. Tim unless I ask you the penultimate question. Are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all? The North Carolina accent game of crimes. That's right. Ladies and gentlemen, get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on, especially when it gets to the point where they took his gun away from him. This man is a big man. Bring on Mr. Trooper Tim Cardwell, retired, one of my best friends. If you would just like it, if it was breathy, because that's we could talk to you that way. You freak me out when you do those voices, Morgan. Yes. <laughs> we'll get you some professional doctor. help. The love doctor is in. Speaking of who's in, it's not the love doctor. It's me and Murph. Hey, and guess what? We have got somebody uh, Murph can't make fun of. If he tries to, he's going to get in trouble oh. because he's another trooper. Yeah. And so, we, 
Yeah, I mean, so for all our listeners, I mean, you can feel my pain right now. I, instead of one trooper on every interview, I got two troopers on here today. Uh, who knows where this is going to go? If you hear snoring in the background, that'll be me because we're going to be telling trooper stories. Well, no, that'll be because you just took your medication. You were telling us of that, and you're about ready. You just you're going to go on the nod. You're like you've been oh, no. I just got up from a good nap, so <laughs> you ought to be fresh. Is, uh, our guest today is uh, an old old friend of mine that I met when I first came out of Columbia back in '94. I got stationed in Greensboro, North Carolina, and and I don't know how we met. I don't remember now, but I think you got up, a ticket, Murph. <laughs> he could have given me one. I'm sure. Of course, I rode with him a few times. I could have given him one, you know. But um, our guest is Tim Cardwell. He's a retired North Carolina State Highway Patrolman, uh, one of the leading interdiction troopers in the entire United States. This guy was so good at his job. He had a dog at one point. We'll talk about his dog a little bit, who saved his life, I believe. We'll talk about that story. But he was so good, he didn't need a dog. I mean, he could sniff out Coke better than anybody I've ever seen. Uh, so we've got some stories to tell him today. But what a pleasure to have you on here, Tim. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. Kind of nervous, but I'm glad to be here. This this is not an interview or interrogation. Nobody's going to advise you of your rights, but just in case, there's the door, Tim. You're free to go at any time, you know? Uh, don't make me call your wife now. Uh, well, <laughs> she, she keeps me straight, trust me. Don't they all? Yeah. Yes. Well, well, let's talk as we do with everybody, Tim. First of all, one trooper to another, uh, thank you for your, your service out there to the great people of North Carolina. Um, so, think of ours, Colson Ulster. How did you get started in this thing we called law enforcement? As a youth, did you fracture a few laws? Were you on the receiving end of some uh, extra ju- judicial punishment, or how did you get started in this thing? Yeah, kind of. Uh, so, I grew up in Madison, Medan, uh, which is north central uh, North Carolina, north of Greensboro, a small town, about 5,000, two towns combined, and just a little mill town. And, um, you know, I did have a uh, encounter with law enforcement at a very young age and uh, it scared me kind of like scared you straight. And uh, I had just kind of gotten, you know, I was a, I, as a young boy, I was just very adventurous, rambunctious. And uh, anyway, got in trouble one night for throwing some rocks at somebody who had uh, run us off from shooting basketball. And, you know, uh, anyway, kind of retaliated in not the best way and uh local law enforcement uh, of course picked us up and uh it no, absolutely- no, no, you don't get to blow past that what do you mean you retaliated and not the best way we need well, some details what was the nature of the retaliation well so the rocks were the retaliation so uh, let me clarify we were shooting basketball outside of a funeral home one night and me and a buddy of mine and Anyway, long and short of it is, uh, I didn't have a basketball court that had uh, asphalt or concrete. I only had to shoot on dirt, and uh, this local place had uh, concrete, obviously. And so we were shooting late one night, and you know, being young, maybe 12 years old, we really wasn't paying attention, and there was a funeral service going on. So, uh, you know, of course, us playing <laughs> caused a lot of echoing, and they come out and actually uh, run us off, so to speak. And so kind of feeding off of each other, being frustrated, we decided to throw a couple of rocks inside of the building. And as such, we got the uh, local law enforcement called and uh, they quickly found us and picked us up and took us to the station. And uh, anyway, it absolutely petrified me. And uh, anyway, they, they did us uh, really good. They were very respectful and taught us a lesson and, uh, you know, didn't come out with any kind of criminal charges or anything. So it was, it was my introduction to the criminal justice system in a personal way. So needless to say, I didn't want to experience it again. It scared me so much. 
<laughs> I never heard that story. That's similar to one I went through when I was about 10 years old. Did any of those rocks happen to penetrate glass or were, did they bounce off the building? Or what was the nature of the damage caused by your uh, retribution? Uh, there really was no damage. It just hit the side of the building. Uh, I wasn't that brave to throw it at a window, but, uh, <laughs> you know, just, you know, it was just at a time where I was, I guess, uh, getting a, out there and probably uh, it kept me from getting in trouble uh, to a greater level, I guess. So it was it was good for me. So so how did that factor into later then? Um, you know, that, that was your first experience. But what led you into this thing of ours? Well, you know, as I look back, I can kind of recount the path. Uh, as a young man, <clears throat> we had uh, growing up, the house that, we, that I grew up in didn't have a mailbox. We had a post office box. And so when I would go uh, to the post office box to retrieve a mail with a parent or, you know, as I got a little bit older, allowed to go by myself, I caught myself reading those FBI most wanted bulletins that's displayed in all post offices. And they just seemed to capture my attention. And unbeknownst to me, you know, I never thought about a career in it, but I think that had a little factor. And then uh, the house that I mentioned, uh, my neighbor who had moved there in the third grade, he was a state trooper. And he spent uh, his whole career in our home county. And uh, he was very close with our family. He lived right behind me. And uh, he watched me grow up. And, you know, I interacted with him quite a bit. And I was always impressed with him and uh, respected him. And I used to see him, uh, you know, when he would leave on a weekend uh, working evening shift with that black and silver patrol car. It would be shiny, and uh, you know he would go out. See, and, Murph, uh, there you go. See, to got to take care of that car. Even yes. back then, it's a got to take care of the car and the uniform. Yes, I think it all is. You a guys symbol. just want to be mechanics. <laughs> We're high speed meter maids, is some of, some <laughs> of the things I've been called, Steve. But, uh, but anyway, that had an impact, and he was really close to us, and he helped our family out in some ways. I, some of my family members didn't live on the correct side of the law, and. You know, uh, we had a little bit of interaction, yes, uh, with the law enforcement side of it, but uh, he was a really strong, positive influence. And through that journey, getting to know him, I just, you know, uh, you got to understand, uh, in our little small corner of the world, the highway patrol, the trooper, was the man. That's the way we refer to him as the man. Uh, not FBI, not DEA, those those folks, we didn't even think anything about. But if it was a trooper that you encountered or somebody had a conversation about, they got the highest level of respect in our little corner of the world. And, of course, my neighbor and a few others that worked our area of the county was the same way. And when you heard other people talk about them and encounter, it was never a criticism. It was always in a respectful way. And uh, I think that had a real positive influence. And so I'll fast forward how I actually led into the career path. Hey, before you do that, though, let me yes. ask you a question. Growing up in a small town, too, we didn't have a trooper assigned in, in my town. It was like a, a town over. But were, was this guy, I mean, you grow up in a small town, it's kind of unique because they got to live around you. But at the yes. same time, it's like you don't get to, you don't just get to break the law of left and right just simply because the guy's your neighbor, right? So how was it, how was he in terms of enforcing the law? Was Was he prone to give you some breaks or cut some people some breaks, but then say, okay, you've had your last break? Or how was he when it came to like writing tickets, you know, and making arrests? Exactly. Uh, as you described, he was one that took a, uh, a compassionate approach to his job. And I remember uh, right before I started patrol school, uh, he had helped me through the process of the application. I had went out and ridden with him uh, on evening shifts. And uh, one particular conversation I remember him having is, just remember, you don't have to write somebody a ticket every time you stop them. He said, most of the folks that you encounter, 
99% of them out here are really good, hardworking people, and you're encountering them at a bad time. He said they could have just had a bad day, a bad moment. And he said, so if you just pause and take the time to talk with them and use good judgment, he said a lot of times a, a warning uh, will serve a much better outcome than writing a ticket every time. And that's just the way he approached the job. And I think that's one of the reasons he had a lot of respect. Now, with that being said, he, <laughs> but here's yeah, the reality. He, yeah, here's the reality. Uh, it was old school trooper days and he was very much an old school trooper and he treated a person as they asked to be treated. He and some of the other guys. And, um, so there was uh, many a stories about, you know, the roadside encounters where, you know, they administered that old school trooper effort, you know, and that reputation that they built, folks in my generation and even today, you know, we benefited from that reputation. And uh, But he had a well-rounded approach. His name was Roger Smith, and uh, he came to my uh, uh, retirement when I did retire and uh, was a guest honor and guest speaker. And uh, also, he was actually the best man in my wedding. And, uh, you know, he, yeah, he, my parents had died at a young age. And so, you know, he had kind of a fatherly figure role for me. And so it was a combination of factors there that led me to the patrol. Uh, that's not how I started the law enforcement journey, but he was a really strong influence. And he introduced me to several of his coworkers that had very similar reputation as he did. So, Again, the highway patrol was, you know, that's that's who uh, the real, I guess, God was in our corner of the world. There you go, Murph. What I tell you, uh, I, you know, what in West Virginia, the troopers had the top respect as well. They, the stories, you don't know if they were true, but man, they were cool stories. <laughs> oh, there are some stories. Trust me, and uh, I actually got to live some of them and see some of them, and you know, <laughs> in uh, in rain, in motion. But uh, but yeah, so I think that was uh, a strong influence on me. And uh, so back to how I led into it. Uh, growing up, uh, most of my life, I, I played sports. Sports was kind of my outlet. I was. Uh, uh, playing all kinds of sports, basketball, football, baseball, traditional stick and, uh, stick and ball. And basketball just seemed to emerge as my you know primary go-to. And so all through school, that's what I focused on. Didn't do the best in school on grades. Didn't really have my focus where I should have been. But when it came time to graduation, I had a couple small college scholarship offers. And um, we didn't have, kind of came from the poor side of the uh, town, if you will. And uh, so you know, my parents could not afford any kind of uh, tuition assistance. And so being young and dumb, not really having a plan when I graduated high school, I decided I wasn't going to go to college. I had met my high school sweetheart several years earlier, who today I'm married to. And uh, so kind of young and not making the best decisions, I decided, you know what, I'm not going to go to college. I'm just going to uh, work in tobacco because I grew up around, you know, tobacco industry, crops and uh, family members. Uh, raising tobacco as well as my wife's family. And I said, uh, when my mom asked me, well, what are you going to do? I said, you know, I'm just going to work in tobacco. I had hired myself out in the summer months, you know, a lot. And that's how I made uh, my spending money. So I started down that journey. And after uh, the summer of graduating, doing that and working in a furniture factory, loading and unloading trucks and no air conditioning and, you know, 1900 <laughs> degree weather, I quickly realized I don't know if this is what I want to do for a living. <laughs> and so I got introduced uh, through a job opportunity uh, through the little small town that I lived in, Madden in Madison, and they had a summer park 
uh, they had a park and I had applied for a summer job at the beginning of the season and there was nothing available. Well, towards the end of the season, after I'd been in the tobacco field for a long time, uh, I get a call and said, uh, it was from the police chief and said, you've applied for a job with the town. The only position we have open is here at the police department. Would you like to interview for it? And I was like, well, I don't know. I, have, well, I hadn't thought about going to work for a police department. Anyway. Well, anyway, and when you hear about me throwing rocks against a funeral home, I may not get the job. So. Yeah, exactly. So uh, he, he had me to come in, and I interviewed, and he said, well, the only position that we have in the town available is a dispatcher's job to police department, and it works midnight shift. Would you be interested in that? And I said, I don't know what a dispatcher is. What do I do? And so he gave me a little bit of description. And in that description, there was two key things that uh, really connected with me. One was air conditioning. And because <laughs> I, I grew up in a house where there was no air conditioning. That's priorities, brother. <laughs> it was, trust me. And, uh, and then the other was cable television. We didn't have cable television where I lived. And I said, so you're saying I work midnight shift and you're going to pay me a salary and there's air conditioning and I can watch TV in between, you know, uh, answering the radio and phones? He said, yes. I said, that sounds very interesting. I'd like to try that. And so I started work there one month shy of my 18th birthday. What what year was that? It was 1982 when I graduated. So I graduated in uh, early, late May, early June timeframe and, uh, the last week before I turned 18 is when I started to work there and which turned out, uh, you know, at a young age, it turned out to benefit me on the, uh, uh, backside of my career. But, uh, yeah, so that's what attracted me. And so I became a dispatcher and, uh, you know, and then that just, as I started learning the profession, I thought, you know, this is something I'd like to do. Well, in 82, I was just starting off as a rookie police officer in Salina, Kansas. And in 82, Murph, you were what, like 19 years already into your railroad career, yeah. guarding <laughs> trains? You bunch of young whippersnappers here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get that much uh, these days, Steve. Trust me. Yeah, hey, And I wanted to ask you about, because uh, when we lived in Greensboro, um, some of our neighbors were, their families were in tobacco. Yes. And when they, at harvest time, they would go out and help cut. And when they would come back, their bodies were torn all to pieces. Yes. I mean, it came in sunburned. I mean, they're just fatigued. And and I guess you have to bend, you continually bend over and cut it at the bottom of the, of the leaf stalk. Is that right? Yes. So the term we used was priming. Uh, I don't know why, but that was just a traditional term in our uh, area. But uh, yeah, you would prime and uh, first primings, which was the first leaves that you're pulling off the stalk was on the ground. And so that was a uh, a huge challenge for somebody my height. I'm 6'4". And uh, anyway, so uh, that yeah, that's what I did. Uh, multiple summers helping family as well as hiring myself out to, uh, you know, neighbors and uh, so forth. And uh it's uh, it's hard work, and uh, you it know. Is. Again, I realized, you know, as I got older, I don't know if this is what I want to do for a living. So, and then of course, you know, to multiply that, my wife grew up in a, uh, a family of farmers, and uh, they raised about seventy, eighty bac- uh, acres of tobacco yearly. And so, you know, kind of funny story surrounding that. When we dated, we met at a young age. We went to different high schools, and we just happened to meet. <clears throat> at a uh, uh, mutual uh, entertainment spot, so to speak. And uh, anyway, uh, once we got introduced to each other, I found out she was a farmer. Well, that was something that, you know, I knew how to do. And so her family would hire me in the summertime. So I was able to see her like that. But I learned some valuable lessons in that. Her mother, who also worked a full-time job in one of the uh, manufacturing plants, 
she had come home on, uh, in the evenings and they would, uh, in the summer, you know, work in tobacco. Well, before we could date on a Friday or Saturday, we had to put in one or two barns of tobacco. And so fast forward, every time she would come in from work, we try to get one barn done thinking we were going to get through and get cleaned up and go out for a date. She said, wait a minute, let's do another barn. And we were just like, oh, my goodness. Well, she knew what she was doing because by the time we got through putting in a couple of barns of the bike. You weren't interested in doing anything. but (laughs) You're exactly right. That was one of the smartest ladies that I never realized at the time. And so by the time we got through, we were just tired. We would get a bath and we would get some dinner. And I can't tell you the number of nights we spent falling asleep on each other at a date. And uh, so her mother was very smart. But (laughs) anyway, that was, you know, those lessons or those journey actually taught me what I didn't want to do for a living. And, uh, you know, I had experimented also working in the furniture factory, loading, unloading trucks. I thought this ain't for me. And I had uh, sold vacuum cleaners for a short time period. And uh, don't tell me it was Kirby or Electrolux. 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 Okay. Yes, it was. My dad used to sell those. (laughs) Yeah, uh, sure did, and had some success with it, but it just wasn't a career path that connected with me. And yeah, so, that, selling vacuums would suck, man. I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Thank you very so, much. So, anyway, that's what led me into the law enforcement career. And while there as a dispatcher, you know, uh, I learned a lot, and I thought, you know, I'd like to try this. And so, when I got old enough, the uh, police chief he said uh, he would uh, sponsor me to go to uh, rookie school which I did. And uh, he continued to pay me a salary. And uh, once I completed rookie school, he brought me in as a sworn officer where I served, uh, I guess, uh, to about a year and a half, two years before I went on to, I got hired by the patrol. Well, yeah, before we get too far down. So did you have to be 21 uh, to be sworn? How old did you have to be? At the time it was 20. You could carry a gun. Yeah. So I started rookie school at about 19 and a half. And when I graduated, uh, I can't remember how many weeks it was. It was like 16 or 18 weeks. I had just qualified to carry a gun as far as age-wise. That was a lot back in 82, 83 to have a 16-week academy. My first academy before I got on the patrol was only five weeks. Oh, wow. (laughs) Wow. Even West Virginia was 12 weeks. Uh, It was dangerous. Well, Kansas has changed it now, but yeah, I remember going through 1982, man. Five weeks. Hey, I wanted to go back. You said something. You said you lost your parents. Um, how old were you when you lost your parents? I was uh, just had turned 19. I lost them three months apart. And, um, you know, <clears throat> it uh, it left me in a situation where, you know, I was trying to find my way, but that left me even more lost. And, uh, you know, my wife, who then we were dating and uh, had just uh, gotten engaged. We got engaged at an early age. But, um, you know, uh, it gave me a sense of not knowing what I wanted to do. I just felt totally, you know, unprepared. And, um, but after adjusting to that a short time period, I decided, you know, if I'm going to do law enforcement, which I had tried uh, community college, uh, trying to get my degree in electronics. And I, I believe me, I failed at that miserably. Uh, even so today, technology, I'm challenged on that, but <clears throat> I had had a relative who went through electronics course. He had played college ball and uh, he was very successful and started his own business. And so I thought, well, I'll go that path. But it I quickly showed me that was not for me. So I completed one semester successfully. So I thought, you know, this law enforcement thing is a uh, interest to me. So I'll try my hand in the criminal justice program, which is what I eventually did. And uh, that 
kind of helped set me on a path to where I could, uh, you know, have a profession, so to speak. It's a very successful profession, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, so, and I just want to close out on that because it's one thing to lose a parent. Uh, you know, it's another thing to lose them three months apart. Was it accidental, medical, or something happened? Or, I mean, what happened that it was only three months apart? Yeah, so my mother, uh, she had, uh, had uh, um, how can I say, she had some health issues at a young age. She was born with uh, a heart defect. And at 36 years old, <clears throat> just prior to that, she also worked in a local manufacturing plant. She had injured her back and had uh, three back surgeries uh, for disc issues. And so she went out on disability at a early 30s age. And uh, anyway, through that uh, time period, she also had a heart attack at 36 years old. And that heart attack was a very severe one. And we didn't know it at the time, but uh, she had been born with a heart defect. And so, uh, you know, before she she died at 42 years old, 43 years old, and when she passed away, she had only been having 20% of her heart that function. So hers was, uh, you know, uh, kind of progressive. And when it happened, she, uh, you know, she had a lot of hospital trips um, that actually are, have some funny stories to it. But, you know, she would get a lot of angina pains and we would have to rush to the hospital, call the ambulance and so forth. And, um Anyway, uh, as much pain as she went through with her back, and I remember as a young boy having to help her change all of her uh, treatment patches, uh, she had to get uh, like little electric shocks in her back to minimize her pain. I had to do that as a young boy, help her do that. And uh, through all that pain that she had and then with the heart issues, she passed away in her sleep one night just as peaceful as could be. So hers was kind of expected. And then my dad, he just kind of grieved himself after that. Um, he, uh, his was accidental, but he grieved himself to death. And, um, you know, his uh, was not expected at all. And I just remember the night that we uh, did his service and buried him, I remember thinking, what do I do now? I, you know, it was such a profound thought that sticks with me today. Well, what do I do now? And uh, anyway, fortunately, I had started on somewhat of a path to figure out what I was going to do with life. And uh, so... That's where the uh, law enforcement side of it really come into play that uh, really was instrumental in, uh, you know, helping me get through life as a, as a, a man. Well, and that sounds like a role for uh, Roger Smith, you know, the trooper, yes. right? He was there during that time. Yes, he was in a major way. He, along with some others, and, uh, you know, to see the support at that time period between, uh, you know, neighbors, friends and family and to include my now wife and my sister. I have an older sibling. She's seven years older than I was. She was, uh, I mean, huge. I can't underestimate. I can't understate how huge she was helping, you know, me and her helping each other through that time period. But my wife. She was, uh, you know, that close confidant also besides my wife, as well as Roger that, I, you know, I just reached out to. And, you know, I remember the chief of police there who had hired me. He uh, kind of got into the personal side of helping me through some time periods. I had made a couple of decisions that was not the smartest decisions. And he was there to quickly grab me and put me, you know, say, hey. You know, you need Slap to think about you upside the head and say, yes. boy, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I've got folks, uh, you know, that really helped me get started on this journey and uh, each of them served uh, different roles. But, uh, yeah. So that's kind of what led me into it. Well, so during your time on the mean streets of what was the department? Medan, North Carolina. It was a, a department of 10 full-time officers and four reserved. 
And then we had a neighbor in town that uh, the city limits connected Madison. Uh, it uh, it had a size department similar. And uh, so, yeah, it, it was not uncommon to be on shift with one or two officers. And that was it. Is that is that north of Greensboro? Yes. It's uh, situated right at the Virginia state line on uh, uh, Highway US 220. And uh, it's well known for its manufacturing plant. And then, of course, when the manufacturing left, it's, you know, kind of struggled. But uh, that was the strong economic base, along with tobacco and agriculture. And, and Morgan, before we finish the interview, we've got to talk about the uh, Virginia State line up in Mount Airy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes, we can. That. I have some friends down at Danville uh, who can tell me a lot about the issues between uh, and the uh, Piedmont Valley area down there and everything about chases going across state lines and crime. Yeah, we'll talk about that. So while you were working the mean, mean streets, uh, what was the most exciting call you handled? Uh, you know, I, I think being as young as I was when I actually got sworn in as an officer to work the road. Everything my sh- was exciting, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was. Uh, you know, some funny stories there. My shift partner, who was actually my training officer, his name was Freeman Cook. He was a huge giant of a man. He was six foot seven, weighed 330. And his hands were twice the size of mine. And he was a gentle giant, didn't know his own strength. But, uh, you know, I remember when particularly we were checking a park out of town, just outside of town, and we get a fight call at a local billiards joint, uh, which was one of our normal spots where, you know, on weekends you'd get a fight call from, you know, a couple of uh, uh, individuals that were inebriated. And being as young as I was, you know, I wanted to go fast. I grew up a hot rodder and, you know, speedster. So that was right up my alley. So we take off blue light and siren and, uh, you had to come down a little uh, mountain called Medan Mountain, and there's some curves there. And every time I'd hit a, a curve, I'd hear old Freeman go, ooh, ooh. <laughs> and Freeman is at the uh, the backside of his career, and he had his had the window down, had his hand just holding on to the outside of the door. And we got about halfway there, and finally he just yelled out to me, if you don't slow this da-da-da-da-da car down, I am going to absolutely, you know what, when we get stopped to me. And, uh, so I'm cleaning it up and, uh, I, you know, it kind of spooked me, but anyway, we got there and the fight was over and everybody was gone. And it was a good lesson for me because he said, me and you's going to talk. So we went back to the police department and he said, listen, if you go that fast again, you got to always keep in mind, uh, you're going to get there when the fight's still going. He said, now we're going to go emergency traffic, but you ain't got to kill us in the whole, in the process of trying to get there. Like you were driving. So I was driving over my head and, uh, and, but he taught me some valuable lessons. He said, uh, you know, you got to get there yourself before you can help anybody else, you know, for what you're being called there for. And, uh, anyway, I still laugh about that this day and time, just hearing him, whoa, whoa, <laughs> you know, doing that thing. I mean, it's a visual, you know, this big giant of a man and, uh, him telling me that, but that was a funny story. Uh, you know, and then we had some others where we had a local cemetery in town, and uh, one of my shift mates uh, was parked in there at midnight shift one night. I was on the uh, radio. We, a dispatcher was off, and he had another shift mate that was running the call calls. And this particular officer was in the cemetery uh, not doing what he should have been doing. I'll leave it at that. And the other shift partner gets into a vehicle chase. And so this officer that's in the cemetery He's in the back seat, and our cars had cages. Well, <laughs> hold on. Okay, let's stop there for a second. He's not in the back. Either he's in the back seat by himself, which is going to be really weird, or he's got company in the back seat. 
He well, I'll just say he had some company. Okay. And <laughs> this shift mate calls calls the chase, and he's right there at the cemetery. And so I'm calling the car, the the uh, other officer, and he gets locked in the back seat. He can't get out. The door's <laughs> locked, and the windows up, and he can't do anything for the shit for the cage. And he's not responding to the radio. And so this chase, he can't get to it. And so this chase goes on for quite some time, and he's just disappeared. Well, anyway, we start having other officers to look for him. Well, he finally appears after the chase and the arrest is made and da-da-da-da, and um, he's very vague. And uh, once we got the whole story, you know, it's like, oh, my goodness, you know, it's a story for the, uh, you know, for the uh, retirement years for sure. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it was funny at the time. Uh, and he still is to this uh, he, he He actually found a clothes rack. And extended the clothes rack and was able to unlock the door of the front driver's seat to where he could then exit the car. But it took him about 15 to 20 minutes to do that. (laughs) You know, he's got to be thinking at this point, I got to come up with an excuse when I break this window out. What was the story? (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, to be honest with you, he just said I was tied up at the time and we could read the rest of it from there. Oh, boy, tied up. Okay, well. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, uh, you know, so there's some good stories like that. And we had plenty of serious stories, you know, uh, you know, we had a a hostage standoff that I was ended up getting involved at the front line of, I was way over my head, but, you know, we had the typical small town encounters there, you know, both funny and serious, but I'd say the lion's share of most of the calls we ran were calls for service, you know, help out uh, folks do different things, elderly move, you know, items or uh, domestic situations. And um, I think that was one of the deciding factors that led me to the patrol was after answering a number of domestic calls, I just decided, you know, this is just not for me. Because what I found was uh, quite a few of those domestic calls were involving uh, family or friends of family or neighbors. And uh, you're really in a precarious situation. Steve, you, I know you understand that working in a small town department where you did, you encountered the same type things. So. Oh, yeah. You're all, you know, they can be ready to kill each other, but you're the bad guy. Yes. Yes. How many times did you we, – we had one couple that – this is before the domestic violence laws where you had to make a mandatory arrest. Yes. And you'd show up there. And so one time we decided, hey, we're, we're not going to announce our presence. We're going to – we want to see it happening so we can make an arrest, you know, uh, and was able to do that. And as we're arresting the guy, all of a sudden, I'm thinking, okay, we're the good guys. All of a sudden, she hops on my back and starts waylaying me yeah. upside the head. It's like, what the hell are you doing? I'm arresting him. You can't take him. Yes, I can. <laughs> and if you don't be careful, we're going to take you. So long story short, he got arrested for domestic violence. She got arrested for battery on a law enforcement officer and resisting arrest. Oh, yeah. And it's like, but you know what? Things were quiet for a couple of weeks after that. So you know yeah. how it goes, you know? Yes. Yeah. It was, it was really interesting to see those kind of things unfold, you know, and you're like, well, you know, we can't help you if you're not going to try to help yourself here. But yeah, exactly as you described, I saw it many times and I just knew every time we'd get a domestic call, it was not my favorite type of call to go on. Nobody Never. wins. Nobody yes. wins in one of those calls. So you said it led you to the patrol. So was there a particular, was it just a culmination of these kind of things or did a particular opportunity come up to where you go, Hey, I want to, uh, you know, want to become God's one of God's chosen few, you know, the few, the proud, the troopers. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, 
I um, Murph, I'm a, sorry, Murph's got the shit eating grin on his. He wants to say something, but he knows he can't. <laughs> I can't. Those troopers got to stick together. Yeah, yeah I'm respectful. Uh, there was a couple of incidents that really finalized my decision to go with the state. I um, I had uh, I stopped a gentleman for speeding who was the father. He was a town councilman, and he was the father of uh, a classmate that I'd grew up with and played ball with, and uh, had a hard time dealing with him. And then another one where I arrested another classmate's father for uh, driving impaired. And he was a super nice gentleman. But the next morning, I was awakened by the town manager calling me because he was a very prominent citizen in that in our little small community. <clears throat> he called me and said, hey, just want to find out the story on this, you know. And uh, he wasn't trying to uh, do anything to change the outcome of it. But, you know, I realized, you know, I'm having to answer questions for doing my job. And so I think those along with just other factors and, you know, going back to what I had said earlier about, you know, my uh, uh, recognition of the reputation for the patrol, I just decided, you know, if I'm going to do this as a career, I think that's the path I want to choose. So that's what I started on was uh, applying for the patrol. And, uh, you know, and fortunately, it all worked out. How long did it take you from the time you applied to you finally got the job? Uh, well, Let's see. Uh, it took about a year, a little bit, about a year. I guess the actual process of going through the interview uh, was about three or four or five months. Uh, but, you know, from the time I had started the whole process, it was about a year, I guess, uh, cumulatively as a whole. How many people in your class? We started 80, uh, but I think my applicant pool was about uh, close to 3,000. And uh, back during those days, the patrol was the highest paid uh, in the state, and uh, a lot of folks wanted to join a highway patrol. And so it was not uncommon to have, you know, one to 2,000 plus applicants for each school. And, um, you know, and when I actually got uh, selected to join the academy, I did not have a full-time position. <clears throat> uh, when you start the patrol academy on the first weekend, you know, it's extremely difficult and they're trying to run off the folks that don't really want to be there. And so I was in kind of a temporary position. And so as part of that, um, that weekend, you know, they have an average number that they know is going to leave. And I just happened to be uh, high enough on that standby list to get one of those full-time positions filled. So it oh, worked okay. out. So they so they hire 80 knowing that a certain amount will drop off because they really only have it's like a football team you got to cut the roster I mean they only yes. have like 60 positions so yes yes in exactly. the herd and you survived yes in the herd and um, you know and I understand why I was not prepared I was physically I had done all the physical things you know being athletic uh, you know and working out quite a bit before I went, I was prepared for that, but I was not prepared for the mental side of it. Not at all. I didn't have a lot of discipline growing up in that way. And I was not savvy to the real world. And I, I just remembered the day that I reported uh, within a matter of 10 minutes, I was being blessed out. Um, I, mean, I, didn't, <laughs> I had one of the uh, instructors in my face uh, just I mean, he was going up and down me. And what he was going up and down for, I never forget, you're standing around as a group. And I didn't have any military experience. No, I didn't understand the military world, so to speak. And uh, as you know, being a former trooper, the highway patrols are paramilitary. 
And uh, so you're just kind of standing in a parking lot as a group waiting, you know, for directions. And all of a sudden, the door to the main building, administrative building, just kicks open and they come out and it's about six or seven of them. And they just full dress uniform. They immediately start hollering at you, telling you get in, uh, uh, get in formation at attention. Well, I didn't know what that stuff was. So anyway, uh, I kind of follow along and get an attention. Then they walking past each of you, you know, doing inspection of you. And all of a sudden, one of them just gets in my face and he just commences to holler at me. Where's your belt, boy? Where's your belt? I didn't have a belt on, but I did have my shirt tucked in. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, I haven't. Uh, anyway, it led to I said, I've got a belt in the car, sir. Well, you better get that on. I said, yes, sir, I will. And I stood there and he said, now. And of course, <laughs> there there is a lot of expletives in between these oh, phrases. Yeah. <laughs> and so I take off running to my car. And I grab my suitcase and start looking for my belt. And, of course, I can't find it. I am trembling, shaking. You know, anyway, I'd looked over the belt, passed the belt three or four times. And all I could think of, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I've left my belt. But it was there. So, finally, I find it. I'll put it on, go back and get in line and uh, just endure the process from there. And it, the first 48 hours was, uh, you know, it was challenging, I will say. But, you know, it was all good. So, that was my first uh, experience with uh, the Highway Patrol Academy. You know, uh, you got to love it, man. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, and back in the day, you had, I mean, we had 16 people in our class. We weren't a big, uh, you know, the state patrol in Kansas wasn't big. It was like 500 sworn, but we had 2,000 people apply. So, I mean, it was competitive. And now, but you look at today, right? It's like, I'm talking to people. Actually, uh, one of my friends, uh, he was on the police department with me. He's now the captain of the training center for the state patrol. They actually they had to go to the legislature to create a program for laterals. They've never had lateral transfers before, right? And they, it's just it's become so difficult to recruit, you know. Yes. And it just but anyway, that was a side. You know, it's a I digress. You know, back to well, our you know, regularly scheduled podcast. Yeah, but that that's a that's a uh, an issue around the entire United yeah. States right now. And I was meeting with the uh, I met the chief here of the Orlando Police Department a couple months ago. Went up to his office and met him and. And uh, he and, and a lieutenant who I'm getting to be friends with, John Cute, uh, they were talking about people coming in. And what Orlando's doing is they advertise around the country. You can get the lateral. You get something like an $8,000 bonus for lateraling in. And Orlando cops here, they get paid pretty good. You know, the, I was really shocked at the amount of money they're making here. So it's very professional department, uh, very progressive police chief who came up through the ranks. But they, he knows. He knows his job. He knows how to advertise, and he knows how to entice people to come to OPD. Yeah, and it's the same way here as you guys are describing. Uh, you know, the uh, application pool is really diminished in numbers. And, um, you know, when I joined the patrol, we were the highest paid in the state. And uh, anyway, through, you know, my career, um, we didn't get quite a few pay raises for a number of years, and other departments were. And so the patrol fell behind in pay. Uh, to keep, you know, to keep up with some of the better, larger paying departments. And uh, so they're still playing catch up and, um, you know, still not where it needs to be, but it's better than it was. Uh, but, um, you know, it's it's the exact same uh, reason, yep. you know, everywhere you go. How many sworn troopers are there in North Carolina? I think they're right at 2,000, maybe a little less. I don't know the exact number today, but through my uh, career, uh, one of the governors merged uh, the uh, commercial motor vehicle, which was separate than division motor vehicles, merged them in with the uh, patrol. And I think that brought an additional like 300 positions, so to speak. And so that 
brought us up to the allotment that we have today. Uh, if there's been any increases legislatively for allotment, uh, I'm not familiar with it, but it should be around 1,800, 1,900, I think. Wow. Now, um, North Carolina Highway Patrol, what's your State Bureau of Investigation called? Uh, State Bureau of Investigation. Um, <clears throat> they had another restructuring uh, several years back where they put all law enforcement under the Department of Public Safety. So now you have the Highway Patrol, the State Bureau of Investigation, which obviously is our sister agency. And then you have alcohol uh, law enforcement, ALE, and uh, Department of Corrections and State Capitol Police. So they're all under one department now with a, uh, I think, a director or commissioner. I'm not sure of the title, you know, that's uh, appointed by the governor. What do you think of that structure? You know, I like it. It makes sense. Uh, you know, there's a plus side and a negative side, but I think overall, uh, to keep up with modern times, it's been a good thing to bring all law enforcement under one setting. Uh, in our day, uh, you know, we were under crime control and public safety, and the State Bureau of Investigation was under the, uh, uh, I think it was the State Attorney General's office. So it was separate entities, even though we still work together with sister agencies, there was still that lack of communication and ALE was uh, also separate. And so to bring everybody under one umbrella just made sense. Again, you know, law enforcement as a whole, you know, you've got to obviously evolve and uh, modernize. And that's been several steps, you know, to to make it better, I guess, so to speak. So I, I like the way it is and the guys speak highly of it that I still communicate with. So it's it's kind of ironic. They call alcohol law enforcement. The initials are ALE, pronounced ale, right? So ale. We need some yeah. ale. Need some alcohol. Right, well, didn't, well, didn't ALE also handle the uh, tax stamps on drug seizures? Yes. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, I think when that program came about, there was another uh, small agency that was uh, started to do that, and I, I can't remember which section it was put under. But uh, they all worked, you know, close together. But uh, that tax stamp situation for narcotics, um, uh, I think it was, I'm trying to remember, one of the uh, original members was uh, one of the DEA agents. Uh, yep, Fred, yes. And uh, anyway, uh, he worked really good with us. And that program's still going, I understand. Hey, Morgan, you'll love this. We, if, if we made a drug seizure, we'd call what we call Fred because he's former DEA give him the facts on the phone. The next day he's in the office, he would find out. So if you seized, I don't know, let's say, what was in that tractor trailer we seized that? Was it 200 kilos? Yes. So you seize 200 kilos, he comes in and, and the, you know, there's preset amounts on there. He assesses a tax penalty on the defendant who has 48 hours to pay it or the, the penalty doubles, the tax doubles. <laughs> oh, so no, what, I tell that, you, what that we, leads to is you end up foreclosing seizing. properties. We went out with the Department of Revenue. We would make arrests or do seizures and stuff, get the Department of Revenue out there, and they would they would look at things. They would assess it, and they'd make an assessment. they say, can you pay this assessment? they go, no. they go, well, then we're taking your TV. We're taking your car. They would take this. Yes, <laughs> so yeah. I was like, I love you guys. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that's who the department they were under was Department of State, Department of Revenue, now that you said that. Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, and our, our listeners might think it's cold-hearted, but keep in mind, these people, these, they have everything they have comes from illegal activity. It's all ill-gotten gains. Yeah. They're killing other people. They're you know, ruining lives, and they're taking advantage of other people, their weaknesses. Well, and so yeah. here, here's a guy with no visible means of support, does not have a job. He's got food stamps. Um, he's got a fancy car. He's got a, you know, big, big TV or whatever else. And you're going, hey, where did you get that? How did you get that? It's like, you got it by selling dope. So, you know, you don't get to keep ill-gotten gains. Well, let's 
speak, let's kind of pull on that dope thread a little bit because you get onto the state, you survive the academy, obviously. So yes, yes. you graduate, um, you get out, you start working. As you're working, we want to talk about now what leads you into doing drug interdiction. So obviously when you start off, you're with a field training officer, you go through your training phase, then you get out on your own. What kind of things were you doing initially when you were out on your own? How does uh, North Carolina do it? Uh, I mean, you train for a while, then you're out, and uh, standard like what traffic enforcement, work accidents. Uh, yes, pretty much. Is that what you were doing? Change tires, go get gasoline. <laughs> yeah, Murph, do, I warned you, Murph. <laughs> don't don't go there. One of these days, we're going to be driving. There's going to be Murph on the side of the road. You going? Hey, can you help me? I go. Help me, no. Help <laughs> hey, players. That is the end of part one. Part two comes out as always on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.